You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! どれは奇形人間の王様だ。美しい女どもを奴隷にして好き放題に暮らすのだ。正常な官房や年寄りを集めてきては、こんな奇形人間を想像してきた。これは片刃物が解放されて奇形人間の天国になるのだ。お前た
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Jess Byard. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ben Buckingham. G'day. Our appreciation of 1969 continues with a look at Teruo Ishii's Horrors of Malformed Men. Based on the writings of Itogawa Rampo, the movie tells the tale of Hirosuke Hitomi, played by Teruo Yoshida. When we first see him, he's locked up in an insane asylum, and things only go downhill from there. We will be spoiling this movie, so if you haven't seen it before, please stop the podcast and go watch it. We will still be here. So, Ben, when was the first time you saw Horrors of Malformed Men, and what did you think? I was trying to remember where I first came across this, because it's just kind of a film that I feel like I've always been aware of. While I was doing some of the research, I found that the first international reference to discussion of it was in the Phil Hardy's Encyclopedia of Horror. And I was like, oh, yep, yep, that would have been where I heard of it. And then you read the title, Horrors of Malformed Men, and you go, yes, add to watch list immediately, and then spend almost 20 years trying to find it. I think I would have bought the Synapse DVD, which was also the first, uh, it definitely the first international release. I think it might have been the first DVD release altogether. Um, that'd be the North American release service by Synapse. I'm pretty sure I ordered that and then watched it and then showed a bunch of people and then screened it at my back of a bar film night and traumatized a whole bunch of people. And then uh, not long after, they did the first issue uh, retrospective at the was it the Udin Festival, Udin Festival in Italy. They screened that 35mm print of Horrors Malformed Men here in Melbourne at the Melbourne International Film Festival. So I, I sort of have come at it from multiple angles, all of which have been intriguing and unusual ways to see it, which given its sort of uh, history of not being very widely seen is kind of the opposite of most people's experience. How about you, Jess? I first came across this movie when I was in high school and the uh, a part of these old Netflix uh, forums that don't exist anymore. But uh, that was pretty much where I spent most of my formative years making list after list after list of crazy horror or exploitation or sci-fi or anything sort of adjacent to, to any of those uh, genres. And again, yeah, I, I put it on my to-watch list and then I just hadn't seen it until I watched it for this podcast. So uh, yeah, I first watched it for this podcast and I'm really glad that I did. I I, I I watched it on a Blu-ray. Actually, it was kind of funny. My husband purchased me the uh, Arrow Blu-ray release of this for Christmas because he one of my wish lists and I had thrown it in there recently and he was like, yeah, it was at the top of your list. So I thought you wanted it really bad. And I was like, well, yeah, I totally do because I want, you know, I want to watch that version for the projection booth. So yeah, this Blu-ray really delivers and I'm glad that I finally got to knock this film off my list. And I definitely want to watch more of Ishii's repertoire, which I understand is even harder to find. <laughs> Yes and no, there are a lot of things out there, but he is, if not as prolific as Mike, probably pretty darn close. I mean, the guy put out so many movies, it's just crazy. I want to say that he had at least 
three movies this year, if not four, in 1969. So it was just, he was just cranking them out, man. And to the point, too, where a lot of the titles just start to run together because he would also do a lot of series. So there's like the line series and just the, uh, the, the whole joy of torture, I think, is one of his series and stuff. So he was just making buku movies. So it's kind of tough to keep up with them. But yeah, to your point also, you can't really find very many good copies of this stuff. And Horrors of a Malformed Man, or sorry, Horrors of Malformed Men was a movie that I came across the title probably on Tom Fitzgerald's infamous Pimpadelic Wonderland list of hard to find or impossible to find movies. Because for a lot of years, you could not get this movie at all, um, whether you were in the States or in Japan. And there were a lot of theories as far as why is that? Um, was there something really incredibly objectionable in here? What was the story with this movie? Why was this movie essentially banned for all these years? And I think a lot of it has to do with the idea of malformed people, that malformed is a uh, the original word in Japanese apparently is very offensive. So it'd be like calling this a movie about like the R word or just like really awful American words, English words. And also when you think about when this came out and the history of Japan and just that there were probably some quote unquote malformed people around due to either war injuries or radiation from Nagasaki and Hiroshima that there were, this was probably speaking a little bit to that too. So I think that people look down upon that whole idea of these mutant creatures that they have in the film. Yeah, no, it was released on uh, Halloween in 1969. So they were definitely leaning into the, the horrific element of it when they released it. But from what I understand, he, he had the full support of, um, of Tori studios and that they were, they, they, even though it was pulled and it was it was pulled from circulation not long after release and it never received a home video or DVD release until this century, it still did do screenings, like midnight screenings and such. So it wasn't entirely a banned film. It was kind of kept up the sleeve as something to pull out every now and then and draw a crowd and had its admirers, but obviously that was very localised to Japan and a very a small handful of cinemas. And I can see this being, especially in 1969, and I mean, Japanese culture is a very conservative and reserved culture. There's not, there's a lot of sort of perversion and sex associated in this movie with this movie. You know, the island itself is sort of this fantasy islands type resort, if <laughs> I, I guess for, for our, our lead characters pseudo father it's his sort of just playground and a place where he can act out and be as him and as involved in this stuff as he wants to be sort of outside of the purview and watchful eye of the family and everyone outside of the family so i can see this being a very sort of shock to the system too for japanese film boards and general you know just like here with or just like in the in the uk with the video nasties or just like here with censorship and you know haze code things like that it's all just sort of a mix of conflicting ideals i guess 
it reminds me of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a number of ways, but I think it's it's just that in some ways it's just the title. <laughs> it's a kind of like if Texas Chainsaw Massacre if it had been called anything else, it wouldn't have stirred up nearly as much controversy as it did. But it's just that impact of that title, Horrors of Malformed Men, just immediately so things you go, ugh. <laughs> it's funny you said that because I was, as I was watching this and um, our main character sort of assumes the identity here, I was just picturing like he, is, he essentially assumes the identity to the worst family you could assume your identity to next to the people and the family in the texas chainsaw massacre like if you just like tried to come in and be like yeah i'm gonna inherit this meat farm and everything's gonna be great oh crap they're cannibals all right so they do have the, the you know the the uro genre the erotic grotesque that it does grow out of the traditions of shunga art which is there's erotic art it was uh labeled as hentai being obscene and it was theoretically banned, but it was, you know, it was still prevalent and everywhere through the 19th century. And it only really started to get uh, locked down and, and it was only really fully banned when they started to integrate more with the West. And it's that classic thing of we don't want to present ourselves as being this. <laughs> you know, Australia had the same thing in the, the 70s where it's like we wanted to present Picnic at Hanging Rock. We didn't want to present Turkey Shoot. Shungu was the exploitation of Japan in the, <laughs> in the 19th century. So that's you know very much where the the Uruguay comes from, and and you know Edgar Rampo um, is tapping into those traditions and combining them with Western traditions, and so in a way it is kind of pushing back against this uh, nationalistic jingoistic culture that is developing, that is starting to close itself off, even as it's embracing the West. And we should probably note that this, uh, the full title of this movie isn't just horrors of malformed men; that it's like collected works of Itogawa Rampo, because they are pulling not just from one story when it comes to Rampo, but a whole bunch. I think I counted like six different stories that there are bits and pieces matched up to this. There's a lot to do with the strange tale of Panorama Island, but there are other bits and pieces. There's even a little bit of like his story of the human chair that's mixed in here. There's things about twins. And this just kind of mixes and matches all of these different bits of his stories and puts them all into one stew. And I think that's one of the reasons, too, why this movie feels slightly disjointed at times, because we are... We start in this insane asylum, we move out of the asylum, we have this whole weird like North by Northwest scene where <laughs> where he's holding the knife that uh, stabs this woman that he just meets, and he's there, and I'm surprised the photographer didn't come up and take his picture right then. Then there's the part that we were talking about, uh, about him assuming an identity and becoming part of this other family. And then the movie takes a left turn again and ends up going to this island that the father of the family has. It's a little bit scattershot, but I think just because it's all presented in the same tone and stitched together through the editing, that this doesn't feel like you are taking six different stories and just kind of cramming them together. It actually feels feels like this whole thing is cohesive to me. I did not read all of the various stories that are you that you found in this i did start reading panorama island i think i'm about halfway through it and there are i think that probably the majority of this plot is taken from that one like just the the bit the biggest plot points being the island itself the assuming identity 
again, it's also kind of, it's very different, I think, from this movie, because I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but, uh, or if you got to read any of Panorama Island, but the lead character in Panorama Island is a lot less likable than the one in Malformed Men, and not that the one in Malformed Men is particularly great. I mean, he's not really terrible. We don't really know him to do anything bad. We don't really know why he's in the institution to begin with. The worst thing he does is obviously assume the identity of this dead man. Turns out it doesn't really matter, but in Panorama Island, he's a much more, I think, you know, deceptive and out for himself kind of character, where in Malformed Men, he sort of takes a turn because once he realizes what's going on, he wants to help the family and sort of his father's weird experimentation. I, I didn't get a chance to read any of the stories, but I think in in, in the book form, it's, it's a bit easier to juggle these multiple elements, whereas the film is already so overloaded and full of such dramatic characters and such that simplifying that main character to very much make him our access point into all of this uh, works in the film's favour. And he is very much that blank slate. The way that it opens, it's, yeah, the, the, you mentioned North by Northwest, but it it felt very noir-like to me, which it's Ishii had made a number of very Western-influenced noirs previous to this. And I, I watched one of Ishii's uh, noirs, Flesh Pier, and it reminded me a lot of Jules Dussin's work in that it, it's very location-based and very real and dealing with a lot of things that American noir wasn't dealing with. And and that opening, especially with the voiceover narration, it has that feel of a noir, not just in that, oh, well, you know, the tropes of noir and the, the voiceover, et cetera, et cetera, you know, mystery man, forgot, amnesia, all that kind of stuff. But the, that, that feeling that the narration feels like a thread that's already pulling him forward, the destination is kind of inevitable, even though we have absolutely no idea how we're going to get there or where it is or how many twists and turns it's going to take to get there. It feels like the thread has already got him and he's already doomed to whatever is going to happen at the end, just like most leads in noirs. Yeah, the voiceover, the mysterious bald man in the asylum who wants to kill him, the lullaby that he thinks that he can hear, the images of the cliffs that he draws out, just all of this stuff. It's like, okay, who is this person? And I think that the actor that plays him does a really great job because he becomes that. And and I think you pretty much said the exact same thing, Jesse. He becomes like the normalcy in this insane world. He plays it so straight, he never goes off the rails like so many of these other characters do, especially the father character who just, from the moment that you see him, he is just 100% wild and even has like mad monkey noises coming out of his mouth and stuff. So it's just like, wow. So he is the complete opposite of of who ends up being his father noir feelings for sure and that's coming I, it mostly i would say from the rampo was a mystery writer but <laughs> this is some of like yeah th- this is not your american noir not at all i mean the second we see his father like that that minute where we're introduced to him and he's doing his interpretive dance on the cliffs and running through the water is legitimately unsettling it legitimately just like it's funny and there's a lot of unexpected humor in this movie that works and is also just kind of you know it's pleasant silly and yeah our lead character just being the constant straight man in this world that just gets getting even more absurd but 
Yeah, his father really, he, that actor and the movement that he does. I mean, it's he. It's not just that scene. Anytime this actor is on screen, he's doing some kind of strange, you know, fidgeting or dancing or whatever you want to call it. And it makes my skin crawl. It really does. I It's entertaining to watch, but I also kind of want to look away. And there were a couple moments, I think, here that, you know, as a horror fan and having these movies that are on these lists forever that I, I have, you know, checking them off is just kind of like a, ah, it's a very accomplished feeling, but I'm always looking for the horror elements in them and why they, you know, why would they be on these lists? And there that his character alone and, you know, a, a scene later on in the movie when we're kind of getting the main exposition as to the past and the connections that all these characters have. There's a scene where, there's a lot of crabs crawling all over a corpse, and I, I had to look away. I had to look away for a couple seconds because it was hard to watch. And this also comes from the era of film that I'm never entirely sure if animal violence is real or not. That snake definitely was real. <laughs> it's such a staple. Like, I watch a lot of Italian cinema, and it's like if an animal appears in an Italian film, it's like, that animal's going to die. <laughs> and it's very much the same with Japanese and Chinese cinema as well. Italian cannibal movies were influenced, I think, by this or by films like this, because when they arrive at the island and we get to see all of the sort of creations that the leader has made, it's I got I got a lot of cannibal holocaust feels and a lot of <laughs> seeing all of those people just riding around I just I kept I couldn't take the scene out of my mind in cannibal holocaust when they're getting ready to destroy that girl and I was waiting for something like that to happen in this movie it, it did not but I can definitely see a lot of that influence in there as a big cannibal fan uh, I was sitting there wondering does it count as cannibalism if you eat crabs that have just eaten your boyfriend? Exactly. No, no, I feel like maybe tangentially, yes. <laughs> that was something I was thinking about a lot as well, because it really just didn't travel as far as I could tell. Like, there's, they're just, I don't know if people uh, overseas or other, like, filmmakers and such but you could definitely there's so many strong connections i mean like even with like such works like jodorowsky you know el topo was being made at about the same time released in 1970 there's a lot of commonalities with el topo and holy mountain of the italian directors i would definitely consider that ishi and uh, erge diodato probably are the most akin to each other both working in the same kinds of extremities and coming from a very sort of grounded earthy background but <laughs> willing to take extremely bizarre flights of fancy I, I would love to know what issue was reading because a lot of this reminded me of the theater of cruelty uh and the works relating to that which i know that you know jodorowsky was definitely drawing on and the diodato would have been aware of um and you know even fulci as well when you look at some of like uh watching um japanese how jigoku uh, one of ishii's later films there's a lot of similarities with the beyond in his depictions of hell obviously that's a long time after the beyond's made 20 years but it's still you can feel that they're all kind of tracing back more to these manifestos and theories and uh, attempts to try and push 
the art form into different directions. And Ishii was definitely, he was very much about that trying to explore new things and new ways of, uh, of presenting ideas in cinema. And, you know, the, 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 his earliest successes were the, the Starman series, which I haven't seen any of, but they essentially start a whole series of sci-fi films that start the, you know, superheroes in cod pieces and ridiculous outfits like the Inframan and all that kind of stuff. And Ishii basically started that subgenre, which, you know, still continues to this day in Japan and throughout the world. And so he was he was very iconoclastic in where he was willing to go. And, you know, he came to doing those Starman films after working with some of the most respected Japanese filmmakers who are, you know, the kind of people that get played at Cinematheques now, whereas Ishii is still largely ignored. So his, his influences are pretty diverse, but he was really unafraid to just go out there and get in the mix and explore and try new things. And that really pissed off a lot of people <laughs> that he was, he was, he was very unpopular at Toei. Um, there was actually, a, I think it was a group of 20 or something, uh, assistant directors got together and signed a petition to have him fired from Tori and never to work with them again because they considered his uh, torture films and his horror films to be bringing about the end of cinema. <laughs> yep, yep, we've been talking about the end of cinema for a long time. The, in listening to the some of the audio commentaries that are on that Arrow disc, I think it was Mark Schilling who, who met with Ishii and had, had organised the the retrospective in Italy, he's described him as playful. He said that was absolutely like the the, the, the one word that you would most use to describe Ishii, that he was incredibly playful and he's just had this energy and he just, I think that's what you like what you're saying, Jess, about the, the humour in the film, that unlike a lot of Asian cinema where the humour is a bit sort of on the nose or slapsticky, it's like the humour here does feel a bit more organic and even though it is like his films are quite nightmarish and horrifying, he can feel that kind of like that it's coming from an actual person, that kind of sort of bit of a punk, playful personality, which much like Diodato like has that kind of personality when you listen to, to him talk. And, and yeah, absolutely, the more of his films you see, you're like, oh, yeah, even, you know, watching his films from the last, you know, in his 70s, there's still that incredible energy and that playfulness there and just the obsessiveness with cinema that he had um and that you know Schilling says that even running around the film festival in Italy he still had a camcorder with him and was recording everything that he just loved looking things through a camera and I think like I always think of that as as having like a kino eye disorder where it's just like you're born with it or you're just born with a kino eye and you can't escape it and you just have to make films no matter what I was watching a featurette on the uh, blu-ray and it was um, various directors talking about their introduction to Ishii and later on meeting him and everything. And then the one part they was showing him of a video of him where he was like down on his hands and knees and he was probably like 80 some years old. And they're like, yeah, he's 80 some years old and he's still making short, you know, independent films. I'm like, man, I hope that I'm that kind of 80 year old. I hope that I have still I still have the will and the energy and just the ability to keep myself going and doing something that I love for that long. Because, yeah, I mean, it comes through. I mean, this movie, it's a creepy movie. It's an interesting movie. It's a funny movie. And I think that, like, all really, you know, all good movies, 
it, it sort of go above genre. They just kind of they fit into everything. They can be, you know, you can place different references and different inspirations and everything to to them. And I think that Ishii, being as prolific as he was, and like I said, this is the only film of his that I've seen. And looking at IMDb, yeah, like Mike, you said, he it's crazy. It's seeing five, six movies he's directed in one, you know, in 1968. That's that's insanity that you can direct that many movies in one year. He liked to to shoot quick. He liked to have a, a professional crew that knew what they were doing and wouldn't question him. And so he could just keep it moving and he could fly through it. And apparently he had a he, he had great confidence in his ability as an editor and he knew that he would be able to get enough that he could make it work in post. And so he wasn't afraid of like, oh, we need to set up for this, we need to set up for that. It was like turn up, see what it looks like, work with it, engage with it, keep moving, keep shooting. So that definitely is part of what helped with that speed of getting it made. And I think, you know, someone like uh, Takashi Miike is very much like that. And and another filmmaker who I think is definitely inspired by Ishii, um, Gaspar Noé. You know, he's I think he returned to he well returned definitely on his best form when he made Climax, which he went for that same kind of feel where they shot that in what like seventeen days or something. And so I think that that definitely helps propel that kind of anarchic energy if you're just really flying through it. And even like we were talking about the the father played by um, Tatsumi Hijikata. Now the, he's uh, he's the founder of the Buto dance movement, which is a um, avant garde Japanese dance movement that was specifically designed to try and take dance back from Western influences and to create a specifically Japanese dance, the modern Japanese dance, one that was very invested in the body and breaking down boundaries and confronting taboos. When they went to those, you know, you talked about that amazing introduction of his character when he's on those rocks and his body's just twisting and moving and everything. They just went to that location and Tatsumi just started climbing over the rocks and just exploring. And they're, they're just apparently they were just like, oh God, oh God, he's going to die. <laughs> like, yeah. And apparently he was quite ill at the time as well, but he just like, he got to that space and was just so invigorated by the environment that, that Tatsumi just had to leap into there and just leap into the water and, and, dig in and so you can definitely understand why they worked so well together because they had that kind of connection of being like able to just look at a space and find the inspiration for it you were talking about the theater of cruelty and i think that budo and the theater of cruelty would go hand in hand one on one side of the world and one on the other and that they use so many of the budo dancers for the people that are on the island i thought was a really smart thing to do Everybody that's not supposed to just be a regular, normal person visiting the island has an interesting movement to it, and it's a constant movement. Every scene, everyone aside from your main character and the travel companions, who I guess are probably the, the not quite as interesting part of this movie, for the most part, they just kind of hang out <laughs> in the background later on. But yeah, it's having them as dancers and having that just sort of, again, more energy in each scene is great because it just it keeps every scene lively. Even if you're watching basically a, a scene of exposition, of which there are a lot in this movie, but it's, I don't think, a hindrance to it. I pulled this great quote from um, Antonin Antoine's Theatre of Cruelty Manifesto 
There can be no spectacle without an element of cruelty as the basis of every show. In our present degenerative state, metaphysics must be made to enter the mind through the body. Uh, so, like, this film does that entirely and the Butoh dance movement 100%. That body horror that just unsettles you and, and, and the aesthetic of it as well, that it's sort of, you know, you, you don't know what exactly you're being presented with when you see these people, the combination of the way that they're moving their body and also the costumes and makeup. It's like, is that makeup meant to look dodgy and cheap or is it beyond it's so horrifying and demented that I can't comprehend what it is? And your brain just kind of keeps switching backwards and forwards between these two modes and it totally displaces you. Which is, you know, definitely what the theatre of cruelty is meant to do. It's meant to displace you and make you start to engage and actually think about it and really dig into it. And I think that's a lot of there's, I think there's a, there's this very strange sense of morality in Ishii's films. And I think he's the way is not necessarily to moralize to say something is necessarily good or bad, but that he is absolutely willing to press you up against the glass of something dangerous to make you consider your own boundaries and what you think is right or proper and yeah i think that's part of why this film definitely has that impact because it doesn't let its audience off the hook at any point (laughs) if you haven't seen this movie which i highly encourage you to do think about more modern j-horror kind of stuff the grudge uh the ring Cairo, each one of those have been influenced by this Butoh dance style. So the whole idea of, I can't remember the the character's name, but the little dead girl in the ring, her and her movements, thank you, Samara, coming out of the TV and just the way that she moves, that is totally that Butoh style of movement that we're seeing. And just, uh, you can feel that as you watch this film and and see the way that these characters move and you go, oh, okay, now I, I see the influence of that so many years later because that was like you were saying that it was a post-war kind of movement and it carries through even today and you're right about the makeup effects like the whole idea of the people who are merged with like the goats or the <laughs> twin where it's the beautiful girl and then the hideous creature the hideous creature looks like it just stepped right out of the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. <laughs> it does, and, yeah. <laughs> and what about the rice-headed person in the cage? Has somebody stuck their head in a thing of rice and they've just come out as like a ball of rice now and they're eating themselves? Is somebody else eating? Is that even rice? What the? The film is, what, about 100 minutes long and you don't get to the island until about halfway through, and then you are just slammed for about 20 minutes with a cavalcade of what the fuck. <laughs> like, full, like, compress Holy Mountain into 20 minutes, and you've got something <laughs> of an idea of what you get as soon as you arrive on the island. You were talking about noir and this whole idea of our main character taking over the life of another character who's died. I mean, that has happened so many times in different noir films, or especially like, quote unquote, the sheriff is showing up and we don't know what he looks like, but Willem Dafoe is is uh, going to assume that it's him or the hitman. We don't know what he looks like. And so we're going to assume that it's uh, Nicolas Cage in Red Rock West or something. So it's just uh, that whole idea is a pretty common trope as well. But I do like in this one, it's this idea of he's not necessarily doing it for 
to solve a mystery. He is solving a mystery of sorts, but a lot of it is because he just he's on the run because he's now the uh, the wrong man. He's the Alfred Hitchcock wrong man, uh, and he just so happens to have the same Manji slash swastika um, birthmark on his foot as this other guy who he finds out is dead in the papers. And what that, a terrible that whole, birthmark! Yeah, terrible <laughs> birthmark. <laughs> Imagine leaving your footprints on the sand with that. Just, but, uh, <laughs> I love that whole thing of him then trying to impersonate the dead man. And again, that voiceover going when he's just like, oh, shit, he's left handed. I almost made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so much fun going through those scenes. It's it's It has this just like a weird like uh delightful kind of energy and in that stuff it, it reminds me of a lot of um seven deaths in a cat's eye the antonio margaretti film which is much like this film a bit of a mashup of a whole bunch of edgar Allan poe stories sort of filtered through a euro gothic giallo that has a similar kind of sort of playful gleefulness to it arthur conan doyle was a a big influence on um, Edgar Arampo, uh, and he created his own Sherlock Holmes-esque character with uh, Kogoro Akachi, uh, who is in this film briefly, sort of briefly. And, you know, that seems to be a very Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes-esque, but you must remember that Edgar Allan Poe is actually the creator of the detective novel that he's considered to have written the first detective story. And so even that is uh, is much more of an Edgar Allan Poe element. And I know you remember that um, in reading this, that when they wrote about it in uh, the Encyclopedia of Horror in the in the eighties, that they incorrectly described this as being an adaptation of Island of Doctor Moreau, which, like, you can see those flavors in there, but it's not especially so. And it really is has a it really does have a lot more in common with William Wilson, which is Edgar Allan Poe's story of a, a doppelganger. And there's, there are, there are numerous doppelgangers in this film and doubles. And it very much ties it in with Poe's interest in the uncanny, the unheimlich, that which is home, but not home, which this whole film is just like everything is uncanny in this film. Yeah, because not only is our main character, our main actor playing two roles, but also the woman that he stabs or someone stabs and he gets blamed for she will show up later on as one of these two twins as well i believe so we've got characters that are playing multiple roles um which is nice and then yeah having the twin characters talking lots about sort of historical antecedents uh how about prefiguring incels especially when you start to go into other vampo works like blind beast it's like yeah this is this is all sounding quite familiar to a lot of our current discussion of psychotic males. Like uh, Jess was saying, the Hitomi of the story is much more of an otaku-type incel character where he just sits around and fantasizes all day about this world that he wants to create. And he's got journals that are just filled with drawings and ideas and thoughts. And he he ends up going to this island after he uh, takes the place of this um other person who is his exact double, but they have nothing. As far as I remember in the story, they are not related. That just happens to be a double that he met at college and he can pass for him. And he ends up going to the island and spending the fortunes of this family to make this beautiful island of, of all of his desires. 
yeah, there's no father figure that's like controlling all of this. It's he goes in there and is basically just like, yep, yeah, fuck your family. I'm taking your money. <laughs> and there's this whole weird thing where he he's afraid to fall in love with the dead man's wife. And at one point, the wife finds out. And I want to say she finds out because he might have a bigger dick than the dead man. Does that I sound believe, about right? I believe that is correct, yes. But they don't come out and say <laughs> Which, that Which, honestly, so I thought that they were going to do that in the movie. Because there's it, when he is first, you know, introducing himself to the family. And later on that night, he's laying in bed. And she, you know, wants to sleep with him. But he's like, I don't know if this is a good idea because this could ruin it all. And I was kind of like, are you trying to insinuate something here that like, <laughs> what? And so, yeah, in the story is because he's bigger than her first husband. So we don't go there in the movie. But yeah, it's this whole it's much more of a power complex in the um story and in panorama island than it is in the movie at least for the main character you know that's actually really fascinating because one of the things that i've reminded me of texas chainsaw massacres with this is the the idea of our elders using us and objectifying you know younger generation and um you know essentially cannibalizing us for their own needs which would makes a lot of sense in regards to the, the transitions that Japan had been going through. And I, I had to assume that that would be the same in the story because, as I said earlier, the, the, the period in which um, Rampo was writing was a time in which, you know, the, the conservative, much like, you know, 100 years ago, pretty much exactly, the conservative powers were on the rise and there was much more of a closing off of society and, the, you know, the elders trying to put the youth in their place. These Western influences that the youth were embracing was going to destroy Japanese society and, and that, you know, someone like Rampo was, was going to cause, you know, the perversion and degradation of their morals and all this kind of thing. And it's just like, you know, again, it's like 100 years ago, millennials were destroying everything. Uh <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's same old story. And and, and that uh, that would match um as far as adapting that's quite clever for him to switch it, switch it around like that because in a way it it illustrates more of what Rampo was experiencing in his time as a young person working in these fields that he was, you know, being for you know that they, they did pass censorship laws which caused him to no longer be able to write the stories that he wrote and he ended up writing a lot of sort of like hardy boys style books is which is what a lot of like ishi and such grew up on and so he's actually his period of the, the this sort of really grotesque nightmare stuff is actually quite small because he was just outright shut down and so yeah i think in that and the, the film represents that that it is these these the older generations the older structures you know the old traditions are represented as monstrous and destructive and controlling, um, even though they represent themselves as being outside. Again, commonalities with our contemporary era, you have this rich, powerful male who is in charge of the family in the area who is portraying himself as a victim who has to get his vengeance against the world by committing, committing atrocities against people. And it's just like, it's, it's, is, you know, when you look then at that Japan, Japan was then taken to war by its elders, um, you know, in the name of nationality and nationalism and everything. It's, it's, it's quite a striking series of connections. And, and it, it really, I think it elevates the film when you start to really dig down into that. It's, it's, 
it's it's yeah i found myself going down so many different rabbit holes as i was investigating this film because there's just so many different ways of of reading it that not only applies to japanese culture but as i said if you watch it now and it's like oh this is yeah yeah i can see common elders <laughs> yeah and our main character being a detective of sorts and trying to dig through and figure out what's going on with this family once he infiltrates it when he finds the old woman in the attic and it's just like okay what the hell is going on here it feels like there are politics that he is unaware of between the uh, i don't know what would you call this character he's like the person that takes care of the finances for the family the he steward. seems to be the steward, thank you. Yeah, yeah, he seems to have some things going on. And then also, there are all these women that live in the household. The and it seems, yeah, it seems like he was having an affair with one of the maids. So now he has to balance out the wife versus the maid and you know continue on with this affair. So it feels like he's the same person as he was before because everybody is so suspicious of him. The maid is like, you don't talk to me the same way anymore. You barely look at me. And it's like... Well, I didn't know I was supposed to look right. at you. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, he's, my bad. He certainly discovers how it's not easy walking a mile in another man's shoes, literally, in this, because he's just got women throwing himself left, right, and center, and so many things he's got to hip on his toes constantly. And I mean, I think that that definitely goes hand in hand with what you were saying about elders sort of controlling the youth and making them basically puppets in their game, and that's... Essentially, what happens here is he comes in and on one hand, he thinks that he has the control because he's the one who's assumed the identity and is now, you know, whatever his intentions are, he's wants to complete them. And then suddenly he finds himself assuming the identity, but also assuming all the burden and assuming all the responsibility and assuming all of just everything that goes around goes along with that character's life. And I think that that's how i think that now that that's how probably a lot of youth feel i mean i guess i am a youth and i often feel that way in that i'm just like here to just replace the other people that were here before me to do this job to keep things going for the people above me older than me so that they can maintain their you know way of life and status of living regardless of how it impacts me or my future or anything like that. So, yeah, I, I definitely see, I think that this movie is very relevant to now. And, yeah, we've I think we've a lot of us have been the unsuspecting, like, all right, I got this new opportunity, everything's going to go great. Oh, crap, now I have so much more responsibility and so many more things that I was not counting on, and do I even want this anymore? The film consistently represents careers as a trap because <laughs> he he's he we find out that he was the you know the younger brother who was sent away to become a surgeon in order to master the art of deforming people. So his and whole he life didn't. <laughs> he didn't well for various reasons, which I'm still not entirely clear on because that was when it starts to really just go exposition. But yeah, he's essentially his life is pre predetermined by his father and he has no choice in it. Um, and only his amnesia has prevented him from being aware of that. But then also when, uh, the, the detective turns up and does his massive exposition dump, we find out that many of the people, specifically the women on the island, were entrapped through uh, advertisements for a job. And that so you've also got that they went there to have a career, to have a job, to have freedom, to have something which many women hadn't had up until 
till you know this period in Japanese culture, and for it to be a trap that they are then just captured and taken to the island and made into slaves and deformed. The whole film represents these different aspects of society as just being like on the surface it can it can feel it can you know you can look at this film and see just a lot of exploitation and you know nastiness and such but it's it's actually that it's doing that classic thing that exploitation always did that it was willing to push up against boundaries and borders that mainstream wasn't willing to address and talk about and that it is really progressive in these unusual ways in that it's 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 not it doesn't it doesn't ever really judge any of the characters and I think I think Ishii maybe when you watch something like Japanese Hell I think maybe Ishii shifted a bit in how he perceived the characters later but the morality of the film is to just like not mess with other people <laughs> to just kind of like don't be an asshole and do your own thing <laughs> don't be an asshole and and actually I was thinking Mike. I think this is the first film you've had me on to talk about that has a happy ending. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because you can consider that a happy ending. Well, I was thinking, it's, 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 you know, because. Hey, it made me laugh. <laughs> Dogoro learns the, the errors of his ways. The father, you know, he, he goes, I was wrong. And, you know, releases the wife and they make amends and, and the couple end up together happily ever after as long as they live, which is not very long. And as far as we know, you know, People get to go back to whatever. So, compared to all of the other films you've had me on, this was a happy ending. Immortan Joe died, and and Furiosa becomes the leader. Oh of the yeah, I think that's I, a happy ending. I guess yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, so Bad Max was slightly happier than this one. I don't know if this is just a shorthand, but I've noticed that this movie has a lot of use of newspaper and then even like ticker tape headlines as being exposition ways also to move the story along. As soon as something seems like it's going to be dull, it's like you read a newspaper and all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, your identical twin died. Now it's time to do that. Or when he, quote unquote, murders the girl in at the circus we have the big headlines that look like they're going across Times Square. So it's kind of a, a nice little trope that we have to just hurry up and move this story along as well. I mean, he is jamming so much stuff into this 80-minute something movie. It's just, it's kind of wild. I mean, I like that aspect of it, too, because it kind of, it goes along with the noir style and sort of Hitchcock-style 40s movies of just that... Yeah, we need to announce something or we need to move the plot along really quick. So let's do a spinning newspaper right now. Boom, boom, boom. There it is. And that I, I love that. I miss that in movies. I wish we would go back to that sometimes. And there's that weird moment, too. I just want to call it out because it really threw me the first time I saw this film, which is he doesn't escape from the insane asylum. He just kind of walks out of the asylum. There right. really is no escape. He Michael he Myers meets- is his way out of the asylum. <laughs> He meets the one girl who's singing the lullaby, and then right around the 13 or 14 minute mark, we fade to black, and then we fade up, and then it's the circus, and he's still with the girl, or the girl was part of the circus, and then he shows up and he's got a beard. And it's like, was this shot later on, or what is going on with this? But then the next time we see him, he's got an eye patch on, and then I'm like, okay, well, at least with the eye patch, I understand that he's trying to hide his identity now that he's a murderer. But I don't know where the beard came from, and I don't know how much time passed between when he escaped the asylum and when the circus is. But it's just like, it really threw me the first time I saw it. The timeline is a little 
muddy for like the first half of the movie because there is just kind of trying to get main character, you know, trying to get him to where we need him to be on the island. And yeah, I was a little thrown off by that too. I I thought that time had passed. But then like you said, like I think maybe he just, I don't know, maybe he just had the beard for the circus and then he was like, all right, I'm leaving and I got to impress these people. So I'll shave my face. Which I think maybe if he's supposed to be looking at, you know, pretty identical identical to that guy, he's got to take the beard off, which makes, you know, that would make sense. I also kind of feel like that, and I don't know if it's just because I have been watching a lot of Lynch recently, but that sequence where he, you know, is, leaves the mental institution and bumps into that girl, she's just walking down the street singing that lullaby at night. And then into the circus did just kind of have a, a Lynch flavor to it to me. I'm not sure at all if, if Lynch would have been watching anything like this then, which I mean, I, I feel like maybe he would have. But yeah, I don't know. I just I, it kind of reminded me of the in the return t- Twin Peaks, the return, um, the infamous uh got a light episode with the teenagers. <laughs> it just reminded me of the beginning of that where they're walking through the uh, just down the street in the dark. I, I just kind of had similar feelings towards it. I've got this note here, and I didn't note who actually said it. I think it's the detective talks about episodic memory, and I, I think the film takes that structure to heart, that it is this, this sort of episodic memory as you're coming out of his kind of fugue state in the asylum and that it's fragmented as if he's being drugged. And in and, and some ways, again, you know, there, there's so many, like, yeah, you get so many, like, cultural kind of resonances because it's a bit 12 monkeys-like, as in, like, you know, which is he past, present, where is he, who is he, that kind of thing. But also the beard, like, I love watching, seeing this on Blu-ray for the first time, and it's so obvious how many of the beards are fake because you can see the little plugs. And so I, 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 I you know, we've... We've talked a lot about on directors, filmmakers who love to draw attention to artifice to really sort of, you know, disrupt the audience. And I honestly, I can't, I don't think Ishii likes to draw attention to artifice, but I don't think he's at all afraid or concerned about it. Because, like, for instance, one of the monks, when they find his resurrected body as a bald head, which is very clearly a fake bald head because you can see it sticking out the back of his collar <laughs> i know some people actually dislike those monks and i thought that little bit of comic relief was absolutely appropriate for this movie oh, yeah, weekend at bernie's. <laughs> full weekend at bernie's moment loved it always down for a weekend at bernie's moment it wasn't what's the line uh, i wrote it down uh if it wasn't for quack doctors like you half the dead people would be alive today but there is these moments where you're like, as much like with the deformities of the people on the island, it's like, is is it meant to look not real? Like, yeah, I, like I, I is looking at the Blu-ray. It looks like he's got himself a fake beard and mustache, and so I I didn't read that at all as him having grown it. But then I did think that, like, yeah, he does get rid of it immediately afterwards. So of course he's, he gets caught, you know, stabbing the girl. Quotation marks stabbing the girl, and it's like, oh shit, blew my disguise like day one. What the? What am I going to do now? <laughs> when you go to the, the thing, something like you know, Blind Beast versus Killer Dwarf with very low budget and people attacking it for that kind of thing, and it's like, no, I, I think issues just unconcerned. Like it's it's not. 
it's you know, and you, if you do look at those Starman films that he was making with the the big silly spectacle, and and also just the the roots that this sort of stuff has to the Grand Gunyal as well, where it's not necessarily presented as a reality. That's more about the impact and the effect of it that it has on you. And I think if people are like, you know, it's that classic thing where people go, oh, it doesn't look real. It's like, yeah, screw reality. It's uninteresting. This this adds for so much more complication because you do end up going, did he grow that beard? Is it a fake beard? How long has it passed? What's going on here? What's going on? Is, that, is the monk a fake monk as well? Is he pretending to have? Because like, well, then the monk's like sleeping with the steward's missus as well. And it's, it's just like there's all sorts of corruptions and misdeeds going on that you really don't have any idea of who is being who or in relation to who. And it just, again, like I said, it displaces you so much that you can never settle comfortably into the film. And and I mean that in a good way, in a very good way. Yeah, the introduction of the guy who will end up being the detective later on, it's like, okay, well, who is this guy? And why are they spending so much time introducing this character that he comes out and, you know, oh, that was me who was tending the fire, who made the fire for the girl who almost got attacked by snakes. I, I love that he he's actually the only true good guy the entire thing, and he's the dodgiest character in the whole thing. Like, as soon as he appears, you're like, oh, that dude's up to no good. Whereas everybody else, you're like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? But he's like, nah. Nah, he's up to something. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There's a moment in here where there's someone in an attic and they're they're putting poison down uh, a thread into somebody's mouth. Ghost point blank. Thank you, because <laughs> I know that I'd seen that before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I one. couldn't remember where I'd seen it. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the hit that John Cusack stuffs up in um, Ghost Point Blank. I mean, I've seen other ones where it's like, oh, here's a spider that's going to show up or a snake or something. But yeah, I I was just like, where have I seen this poison down a thread before? Yeah. So thank you. That, that, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, because we have to get rid of the wife in order for him to finally be with the his one true love who ends up being his sister. So maybe this is an influence on uh, George Lucas as well. You know, it's funny you should say that because <laughs> I did kind of like feel like it was a bit cantina scene like when they go to the island. It actually has quite a bit in common with Star Wars when you think about it because you've got this sort of isolated character who doesn't really know where he's coming from and he wants to set out into the big wide universe to to find himself. And <laughs> and he just so happens to be the son of this really horrible guy. Yeah, exactly. sure. Yeah, works. yeah. There, there's a surprising amount of commonalities again. <laughs> it's funny, even though the masseuse, the blind masseuse, who is another kind of stock character of uh, the blind masseuses were common in Japan, but also is going to be when we talk about Moju, the blind beast next week, we're going to uh, talk about that. But she's describing the father's hands as being webbed. And I see the father and I see him over and over again in this movie. And it isn't until towards the end of the movie where I'm like, oh, look at his hands. It's like, I don't know why I'm so captivated by his hair and by his movements that I didn't even notice that his hands are fucked up. I didn't either. I mean, until the end, like you said, until the end, I totally was not because everything else is so interesting. His hair, his face, what he's doing the whole time. It's the hands are the least interesting part of what's happening in his just general aura. <laughs> and he's got that amazing voice, too. He sounds like uh, Lord Ritsudo from the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub movies. He's got that real, like, oh, no, no, voice to him. 
in the flashback sequence where you find out Jogoro's sort of, you know, origin story, uh, you do see his hands and they are, other than having webbing, they are normal. So when he is on the island, his hands are covered in caked in this kind of white plaster. So that's clearly some sort of affectation that he has put on to hide his deformity. But the the voiceover, there's he's, he is quite often out of sync, which again is like one of those. I, I makes perfect sense when you find out, as I said earlier, about um, Ishii's uh, tendency to, to shoot quick. That he was quite happy to go back and fix things with ADR and such. And so I think that there's there's quite a bit of ADR on um, on on Jogoro. Uh, but again, with the art of his thing, it doesn't take away from it. Like, if you notice that they're out of sync, because it just makes him seem even more otherworldly uh, and disconnected from what's happening. And I wonder, too, if it was helping the performance, because he is a dancer, he's not an actor. Yeah, he, and he did. He appeared in a number of films for Ishii, and he, there's a couple of experimental films that he was involved in. But no, he, he definitely was, this is, I think, his only sort of lead-esque role. Yeah, a lead role, but who really doesn't even show up until like 50 minutes into this movie <laughs> when they finally go to the island. I mean, the island has been looming large. I mean, it's there in the background of so many of the shots, and it's just like, okay, when are they going to finally get to the island? And when they do, to your point from earlier, it does not disappoint because it is just a feast for all the senses. It is just uh, amazing to see just the insanity that happens here. I mean, the women that are all painted silver, the guy who's spinning the torches and everything, just one thing after another after another. And in the story, I like it that it's this whole idea, they call it Panorama Island because of this, uh, uh, like an old time type of thing called a panorama where you'd go into a room and it would seem like the room was much wider, longer than it was. So we'd do a lot of recreations of battles and it, was this whole thing it was uh, kind of reminds me of this thing i went to when i was in georgia once but that's the where the stage kind of spins around and you're um in the center and this one it's more you walk in and everything is around you the the idea of what he does is he's creating this island which is all of these different areas where you walk in and it feels like you're walking for miles but it's actually only just a few feet that he's using optical illusions in order to trick your eyes and trick your mind that's why it costs so darn much money. It isn't because he's making freaks. It's because of all of these optics that he has to create on the island. Yeah, interesting resonances because Tatsumi Hijikata, one of the films that he was involved in, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a, the only ever film produced in Astrorama, I think it was called. I think they talked about it in arrow video booklet and it was like five interlocked 70 millimeter projectors and so it was tatsumi hijikata projected on like just the biggest bigger than imax and it, it, apparently where, wherever i read it they said it's to this day it's still the largest projection ever in history of, of film that connects with that obviously but also connects that Rampo did write on cinema and he, he wrote that it, it, it 
terrified him, that he didn't like it, that he thought it was incredibly unnatural, that it was uh, being thrust into uh, Gulliver's travels and you, just, you were suddenly made to be this, you know, small person in this land of giants with these monstrous faces towering over you beyond any kind of normalcy. Yeah, there's, like, there's just so much with this, this film and the connections to it that just overlaps in such fascinating ways. I just... Ah, oh, man, like I said, rabbit holes. I can't even remember half of where I was reading anything from because I was just going sideways into this and sideways into that. It's, it's such a, you know, there's just so many fascinating interconnections with Ishii in general. It, it, there was the, the other thing with, um, this is 69 and, you know, you're doing your month of 69 that how much he really nailed the sense of a cult and a cult leader as well. And when I, I, I was only in you know the last couple of weeks that I found out that Ishii had made uh, Japanese Hell Jikoku, which depicted Um Shunriko and Kashihara, um, their leader, being the the group that committed the sarin gas attacks in Tokyo subway in the nineties, and that blew me away because Jogoro is very similar to Kashihara. Picture I remember of him is with that huge beard, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the sort of the ideology of it as well and the kind of madness of it. Um but obviously also sixty nine, you've got Charles Manson. There's a real Manson vibe going on here. But also Jonestown, like I had such Jonestown vibes from the kind of the island and the way that they were operating and his kind of cult-like leadership. It's a pretty consistent theme through the Ishii films I've seen of working around ideas of tyranny um, and tyrannical figures and the kind of monstrosity that comes from tyranny. And quite often the characters and, 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 not just in um, Ishii's films, but also in Rampo's works, that these these tyrannical figures grow from victimization, um, much like we were talking about earlier, the, in like the incel kind of thing, the idea that they are victimized and that turns them into monsters. And I was thinking about that a lot because, you know, we we brought, we brought it up at the beginning that, that this was essentially banned and not presented much because of its issues relating to the title Malformed Men and, you know, taboos relating to that in Japanese culture and worldwide. And, you know, you look at something like Blind Beast and, you know, and the blind person as as a killer and killer dwarf. I mean, you've got a, a dwarf person as a, as a killer. And generally, like in the West, we've become very sensitive to these representations of people who are, quotation marks, other as being monstrous and, you know, a, a danger to us. And, you know, it, it, it feels a little bit like splitting hairs. But as I dug into more of his films and I looked at all this stuff, the monstrosity, like the monstrosity isn't their physicality. It's nothing. Their abnormality, their difference, um, their disability isn't what makes them monstrous. It's the way society reacts to that is what makes them into what they are. They feel that they are ostracized, that they haven't been given the opportunities that they should have or that somebody outright just didn't care for them. I mean, in the beginning of um, Japanese Hell, uh, one of the – because that was a film that was sort of patched together from a couple of different films that he was trying to make. We have a, a, a couple of scenes of a young man who is killing uh, little girls and 
one of the little girls sees his hands and goes, oh, what is wrong with your hands? And you don't really see, like, what's wrong with them. He just says that they're paralyzed, partially paralyzed. And the character, is, you know, the serial killer says in voiceover, you hear him thinking, you know, oh, my, my parents, you know, they didn't do anything about this. They did, didn't have the operation done to fix it. And so, again, we have this connection to parents failing to help their children or, you know, victimizing their children or leading their children to feel like they're victimized by their parents. And it's really consistent through quite a bit of it in, in Blind Beast First Killer Dwarf as well. It's like uh, he says that he, he you know, he, he it wasn't until he was victimized after joining the circus that he decided he would only live for himself and screw all other people. It's very important to, to be aware of that when you're watching it, that Ishii isn't – he isn't dehumanizing people. He's dealing with characters who dehumanize people. I wonder if the circus theme comes from Rampo or if that comes more from Ishii. To the circus point and to to your point about, you know, tyranny and victimizing people, it's – there's a lot of obviously Edgar Allan Poe influences here through Rampo, uh, being a huge fan. I see a lot of Corman influence through some of this, just as far as I think a lot of the stuff like the, you know, stuff on the cliffs and with the ocean waves hitting, um, a lot of sort of towards the end where we get the screens going green or blue remind me a lot of, uh, Mask of the Red Death in particular. And I mean that there with uh, when we get into Prospero's castle there and we have see him being like, sure, you can stay in my castle away from the plague. But in order to do that, you basically have to do whatever I want you to do to do. And I'll humiliate you. I'll make you act like an animal. I'll make you, you know, dress up in these costumes and do these weird things all for my amusement. And basically you get to live now your life isn't great, but you're alive, so be grateful for it, I guess. And I get th- there is a lot of that coming through to me on this. And I think a lot of that, again, I, there's that cult aspect where it's just this collection of people that, for whatever reason, are sticking together, be it because they don't have anywhere to go, they don't, you know, they don't have any confidence in themselves, they don't have the ability or means to do anything for themselves so they stay and i think that you know having the main character he he does stay for a while i mean he is told you're gonna stay here for a few months and you're gonna basically for the rest of your life and you're gonna be my doctor and then he's not really trained but he does some operation anyway and it turns out fine and i just i think that yeah i liked i liked seeing the sort of Edgar Allan Poe meets Corman meets Japanese influence all sort of converging into this one piece. Of the issue films I've seen, this is definitely his Corman Poe-esque AIP film. He was definitely one of the much much like the the Italian directors. Again, this is he reminded me of Diodato that of of the films I've seen, he tended to make films that directly borrowed influences from the West. That, you know, like I said, that his noirs reminded me very much of um, Jules Dassin, that Ishii's first big hit um, was uh, Abish- Abishari Prison, 
which was directly inspired by the Defiant ones, essentially kind of Japanese remake of that and became a huge hit. I revisited Female Yakuza Tale uh, after watching Horrors of Malfilm Men again, and that you watch that and you're like, oh, this is his spaghetti western. <laughs> like it, it's it's so western, spaghetti western influenced, and so he was very comfortable in switching between these kind of you know the, these different taking his specific interests and applying various genres to them and doing it very, very successfully, um, much in the way that the the Italian directors did. And actually, I'd say possibly like far more uh, successfully than the Italian directors because you tended to get, you know, a lot of the Italian directors didn't switch so successfully between different genres. You know, like Margaretti was very much specialist in gothics and, and uh, you know, Lenzi was a bit more the, you know, crazy – the horror action and, and et cetera, et cetera, you know, um, Castellari more the the macaroni war and westerns and such. Whereas, yeah, Ishii could really switch between styles quite comfortably um, and pull it off very successfully. And you're right as far as the El Topo thing goes, too. I mean, I forget about El Topo being a movie very much of two halves, very much like this one. Because with that, we have, after the gunfighter version of El Topo, then we have the freak version of El Topo and him there with the freaks and the whole Western town. And again, the cult and the whole, you know, all seeing eye and the, um, the, the, the games of Russian roulette and all that. But the idea of El Topo coming up from the underground with all of these fellow freaks is very similar to this idea of going to this freak Island. Um, but here like El Topo, I don't think he was manipulating the freaks like he, and I, I know that I'm using a really horrible word of freaks, but that's the best way to describe um, the folks that are in this, especially the rice man and the goat people. <laughs> <laughs> he's not using them. He He's one of them. And in this one, it feels like the father is more using them and he's more amused by the freaks. I think that, that says a lot about the difference between the two cultures at the time because, you know, the 60s counterculture very much embraced the word freak. Uh, and, the, you know, they did became part of the the movement and became way to like identify as not being the man whereas in the east that never happened uh, it, it just there was no positive association with the word and so instead it, it becoming it, 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 it the, the, they're just another uh, group to be victimized and then that is something that is very consistent uh, in issues work is is abuse and victimization. And also, um, I can't remember if it was Flesh Peer or Female Yakuza Tale or maybe even both. I think it was Flesh Peer has, um, asylums being used as a place to illegally lock people up to get rid of them and shift them into slavery. Um, which we find out is that the women at the beginning in the prison are all these women who are lured in with a job who are then going to be sent off to the island. Um, and so even that's fascinating that these, these, the, what is meant to be a place of care, uh, and healing, theoretically, definitely not at that time or for most of history, is actually just another trap, uh, is just another place to be further abused and destroyed. And actually, you know, we, we, we mentioned how they did this torture cycle, but there, there really are quite a few of them, you know, in, was it, 
punishment is a consistent theme. It is, the punishment recurs through so many of his films. You got, you know, Inferno of Torture and Shogun's Joy of Torture. And, and this was very much, you know, these, these cycles, you know, the, when you look into Japanese, uh, cinema at that time, again, it's much like the Italians where they will go through the cycles, like the peplums and the gothics and the, you know, polizzis and things like that. And they would have their cycles, the Yakuza films and their, the torture films and their, you know, the, the, the Kaiden films and uh, and all those kind of things, but because last you know last week you were doing Venus in Furs, this it wasn't just in Japan that there was this sort of explosion of interest in torture cinema because like uh, there's like Mark of the Devil, there's lots of you know the Spanish Inquisition kind of film, which find a general. Um, I haven't watched it yet, but you know, eighty eight films just put out uh, was a. Beatrice Senshi, the Lucio Fulci's film, which is, deals directly with torture and religion. Well, and a lot of the Nazi exploitation films dealt with that as well. I mean, you think about Ilsa Shewolf of the SS or like the um, Gestapo's Last Orgy, some of those movies, they just feel like they're kindred spirits to some of these joy of torture films. Yeah, and I think that from some of the readings I did, I got the sense that the latter films, while the Ishii's latter torture films, while they were still pretty negatively regarded, they were very successful and they were allowed more because they dealt with historical instances of torture. And so there was, whereas Horrors of Malfour Men is fantastical and so ungrounded and there's not really a justification. So it's almost like that exploita- uh, this exploitation thing of mum and dad films where it's like, oh, no, this is this is educational because you're learning about history. This is how they tortured people 200 years ago. It's all fact-based, I'm sure, right? <laughs> this is, this will take the whole class along to see it, which actually that, that reminds yeah, me. I, show I, a whole I grew class up, Nazi exploitation. <laughs> oh, I, grew, I grew up in a country town with a large population of born-again Christians, and I, they showed their mark of the devil. The, the Udo Kier oh film. They showed as a rep, as a way to be like, this is what Satan does and this is evil and everything. Like, they're like, you're showing like 12 to six, six, 16 year olds this film, which it was probably banned in Australia and was banned in many countries just because it's a representation of evil. Okay, cool, sure. Um, wait, can I borrow your copy? Yeah, and we do have to talk about this, the end of this film with this whole. Oedipal thing that's going on here because that has come up a couple times this month, actually, as we're talking about Porchile and now this film and just a few others that, um, you know, I'm always looking for edible themes in films and this one, it just is right there on the surface as far as him rescuing this girl from being part of a Siamese twin <laughs> where they're just sure. basically bound together by uh, some cloth it looks like yeah that's why uh, he's so good at surgery he just had to clip the cloth and it's fine <laughs> and going and meeting his mother in the cave and just all the, I mean there's just so many Freudian um, things that are happening in this movie as well um but yeah, that he ends up finding out that his, his sister is part of this uh, this whole thing, and that his mother is there on the the island, and that she had slept with this other guy. I mean, it just goes on and on. And you're right; it's just this wonderful exposition dump, and that's also where we get the. It's almost like that parlor scene in a mystery novel, but this one's taking place in a cave around a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> where our detective reveals himself and manages to unravel everything. 
Yeah, it's it's, it's sort of like a, a cask of Amontillado meets, uh, and then there were none. When it gets to the island, it's like that it is, you know, it is episodic and you do have a bit of trouble following, okay, what's the timeline here? But it is quite linear for the most part and it is does keep along the forward progression. You know, he's on the train journey. It's, you're on the journey with him. And then I, I, the, 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 it, it's the sensation I get, and I think I must have seen this about four or five times now, is like you get to the island and suddenly the film turns into a balloon that is just filling up with blood. And it's just like, it just keeps filling up and filling up. And you're like holding this thing in your hands going, how much bigger is this going to get until it literally explodes in the last five minutes? And it's, it's like, it's, it's such a, a weird way to like sense a film, but that's the sense that I get. Like I get, you watch it and it, and it does weigh itself down. Like it's, it, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't grind to a halt. It does this such a strange thing that it just, floats out suddenly in the last part with this exposition and all this flashbacks and all this extra detail but you're so on tenterhooks being like after everything else that has happened what could possibly happen next and you know only one of the greatest finales in cinema i will happily say right now i would have to agree <laughs> yeah i mean you got you guys you have you have to, and anyone out there listening if you get a chance to see this with a group of people who have not watched it, do it. Do it as soon as possible. Get a group of people over who haven't watched it and just make them watch it because it is – I've done it twice with a crowd that had no idea what was coming and the way that this film just throws them around in that last half an hour and then just slaps them down at the end – Oh, the reaction of audiences is amazing. I know that the Mark Schilling talks about that. This is a screening in Italy that it, like it, there was a 10 minute standing ovation at the end. And it's like, I am, I 100% believe that I would not be surprised because this, this film just, it just like the, once the fireworks start going off and the body parts start flying and everything's just like, yeah, okay, sure. That seems the only way to finish this film. And, and none of those are euphemisms for the people who haven't seen it. The fireworks literally fly along with the body parts. Which, again, I mean, that is so true to the ending of the actual Rampo story, though it's just our main character. And I love this whole idea of him becoming this human firework and that people don't even realize what's going on until they look and they're covered with his blood, that it's just become this mist of blood that covers the island. It's just like, wow, what a way to go out. Yeah. And I was so happy the the detective, when he finally reveals himself and just starts to lay this whole thing out, because we've already had the husband, the father, lay all of these things out. And then the it's basically like, here's one exposition dump. And now here's the detective to give us even more. And it just goes on and on and on. I mean, yeah, I think that probably the last 20 minutes of this film is a flashback to, yeah. <laughs> to, to previous things that have happened. Just amazing. Yeah, and I love the way he uses color tinting as well, that he, he that different flashbacks have different color tintings, but then within flashbacks, it does, people do interject, and it does shift tints when they interject at least one point, I think, and then there's like daytime, nighttime tinting, and it's just like... All the way that you can just see issues, just like again that playfulness of like, oh no, we can we can do more with this, we can do more with this, just chuck in more. They'll do this, do that, do that, and it's just like yes, yes, you know when you when you when you watch like an independent, no budget film and they're just like 
it's boring and you're just like, you can do stuff. You can do anything. You can do so much with cinema, even with no money. Just a simple touch like that can just alter how you're engaging with the film and how, how your whole like senses are pressing up against it. And the, this film never lets off and never, even, even when it does suddenly bloat and sort of grind to a halt, it's still kind of rubbing up against you going, yeah, you like this. You like this. <laughs> <laughs> It really reminds me of like Emperor Tomato Ketchup and the way that um, uh, Teriyama would use the tinting of the black and white. Because I'm curious if this, I imagine that all of these things that he's showing us that are tinted were shot in black and white and then tinted afterwards rather than some sort of color treatment of this. That seems like they'd be the smartest way to go. I would think so. And it kind of looks like it, that that was the fat, like that it just looks like something that was added in post and given what... You said previously about how fast he, you know, was keen on making these movies. I think it was probably something he just wanted to add in after the fact. Yeah, well, there, there is one little odd moment when where they talk about the circus and it cuts to the interior of the circus with the said, and it's black and white, and it's definitely stock footage because you can see that even on the mm-hmm. restoration, there's damage, um, and it's definitely stock footage. But I love that that kind of it feeds into a sense of nostalgia. That it's like again, it, again, it, it it sort of messes with your timeline. It's like, oh, your brain goes, I should be reading this as a flashback, but it's occurring right now. But then that idea of the circus doesn't really exist anymore. Even you know, heading towards that period, it didn't really. So it, it gives you this sense of like, like he's exp- he's he's you're almost in his mind as he thinks circus, and you get those flashes of images of this is what a circus means, and that black and white adds to that kind of nostalgic feel with the the bit of grain and the, the damage to the print. One well, it's smart too that the one son the that was supposed to be the doctor, I think he was given to someone to take care of him who was in the circus. So this whole idea of the sideshows and all those things really play into this as well. So he would have been exposed to real quote unquote freaks in the circus and then having that as your background going into medical school and then coming out if your father got his wish and being able to make freaks on the the island, you know, he would have something to draw upon. Yeah, and, and on a meta level, the the idea of the carnivalesque as well plays into the whole Uruguro genre of being a space where you can go and let go of all your, you know, traditional uh, borders and boundaries and engage with taboos and beat someone else and do different things and then, you know, return to the normal world after leaving the carnival. So there's definitely that aspect as well. When I watched Flesh Pier, there was – Flesh Pier was about um, sex trafficking – and there's a gr- great quote from that from one of the sex traffickers. There was a, once a woman goes strange, anything can happen. And I was like, oh, that that's such a great line. And I feel like she's like, it's you know, it, it, it's in in Flesh Pier. There's a, it's a bad character referring to a woman, but I feel like she is just like once a human goes strange, anything can happen, and that's the ethos of his entire filmography. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back right after these brief messages. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions... Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, 
Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. look like what do they look like jimmy dorks <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks if you're looking for dorky geek filled content where you can nerd out over movies television comic books and so much more then you've come to the right place the in the mouth of dorkness podcast is bringing geek related content to you three times a week hey everyone i'm the turtle dork here at mod on mondays we drop our weekend dork episode which is a recap of sorts where we discuss the most pertinent geek related things we did in the previous week hi i'm wife dork and on wednesdays we drop our homework cast episode each week the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review like heat or star trek 2 or green room Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork. And finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because we all know at the end of the week, we need a little fist of Xander Cage. Hey, and I'm the Disco Dork. In addition to our regularly scheduled programming, we have special guests, film festival and comic convention coverage, interview episodes, and more. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Just search In the Mouth of Darkness or It Modcast, where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
I have been a surfer since even before I can remember. When I hit the water, it felt like a giant had grabbed me and slammed me to the bottom. Never knew there was such a fear. Fear, fear, fear. Surfer, Teen Confronts Fear is a movie of faith, fear, and redemption that has mesmerized audiences around the globe. Now playing at the Film Bar Theater in Phoenix, Arizona. Tickets on sale now at thefilmbarphx.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. All right, we are back, and we were talking about horrors of malformed men. It took me a little while to track this one down, but a f- many years later, I want to say it was his last film that Ishii actually returned to the Rampo well and ended up uh, making a movie called, uh, I, I've read different titles, but Blind Beast versus Dwarf seems to be the one that sticks. And that was another mashup of more Rampo stuff. And at first, I was really turned off by the movie because it looks like it was shot on a camcorder. But then as the film goes on, I managed to get really involved with it, even though it does look incredibly cheap at times. I really liked this one. I didn't like it as much as Jugoku. Jugoku, like, completely, like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm going to make so many people watch Jugoku in the next six months. But uh, but Blind Beast versus Dwarf or Killer Dwarf. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I, I think it is it's, – it's more enjoyable if you come at it from – the Ishii perspective than from a general horror DV, you know, straight to video kind of perspective. Cause I can, I can definitely see how if you just like chucked it on as it's, it, it, it has a lot of <laughs> it, it, things that kind of reminded me of Ed Wood with these just, you know, quick, we've got some film, let's just shoot something. <laughs> but it's, if you're watching it from that Ishii perspective and you've seen a couple of like Japanese hell and you've seen, you know, horrors malformed men and such that you can see this as him doing well it, it it made me want to go and watch um sion sono's why don't you play in hell because i feel like blind beast versus killer dwarf is basically the film that they make <laughs> in why don't you play in hell and it's just like who have we got let's just fill this we've got that person we've got this person you got the director of tetsuro quick get him in there you know it's just like let's go crazy let's spray some blood around let's just like ch- Make make the sets out of paper mache. It's like who gives a fuck? Let's just go for it and just make something on the streets and that feels live. And it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible film, and it doesn't matter one iota because it's just it is exactly you, you you feel like they got exactly what they wanted out of it with a no budget with student actors and filmmakers and. It's just like, it's trash. It's total trash. But it's like, come on, he's 70 years old and he pulls off this. I've seen far, far, far worse films by skilled, quotation marks, skilled, budgeted filmmakers. Yeah, from what I understand, this was, he was teaching a class and this was his students that were making this. And it's funny, there's a, that extra on um, the Blu-ray where you see his students and I love the... The two kids, the one who's dropping leaves and the other one who's just got a board fanning it and stuff. <laughs> it's just, it does look so incredibly cheap. A lot of it reminded me almost of like, uh, what was that one shot of one cut of the dead or whatever? Just that, that level of horror filmmaking that's inside of the movie inside of there. But yeah, I, like I said, I just, after a while I was drawn into it and I was like, okay, this movie looks like it cost 20 bucks, but I'm invested in it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and, I, I was one of the other iconoclastic figures from the 60s that 
she reminds me of is uh, Coffin Joe, and uh, this one especially because it um it the the way that the it's when they they recreate the 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 blind beasts uh you know sculpture warehouse of arms and things looked a lot like the vision of hell from um Coffin Joe's second film which I can never remember the title of which represents hell as this frozen landscape with all these arms and legs jutting out of the ice and it looks almost exactly like that and it, and it just it's it's especially watch I watched it immediately after watching Japanese hell which does literally represent hell they made a great double together. Like they just felt like this kind of weird, icky, like, you know, this feels like something that you might find a micro SD card on the side of the street and go home and put it in and be like, is this, is, did people die? Yeah. It's got like Guinea pig level special effects, you know, (laughs) (laughs) at midnight, I'll take your soul. Corpse is the one with the vision at midnight. I will take your soul is the first one. And this night I will possess your corpse is the second one, which has the representation of hell. They just sound so damn similar. It's crazy. Did you get a chance to watch this one, Jess? I unfortunately did not. I'm looking forward to it, too. And I am looking forward to Japanese hell, too. That was another one that I was really, once I started looking into his uh, filmography that was one that went straight to the top of the list oh man i i'm so glad i i the there there is a copy can be found out there with english subtitles all right perfect <laughs> but i did them as a double and i'm really glad i did because they they you, you can see like the oh the drop in quality is significant like he Blind Beast versus Killer Dwarf makes Japanese Hell look like it has a massive, 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 massive budget. As a sort of pairing of his last two, like they don't, you know, it it doesn't feel like a culmination. It doesn't feel like he's necessarily trying to readdress things or make a point. But if you know all these things that we've talked about, like that playfulness and that obsession with cinema, but also that obsession with tyranny and the fact that he had made a film that kind of predicted a lot of these cults that would come about in the next 40 years, that watching these two together just feels like a really fascinating look at Japanese culture and cinema culture at the turn of the century. And it's they're just they're just great. I, and I, I've got to say, like, Spent 20 years banging on about um, Kinsey uh, Fukusaku and Battle Royale. And, like, I love Battle Royale, but as far as, like, very elderly Japanese directors making insane films in 1999, I am so much more behind Jigoku now than I am behind Battle Royale. And I don't just mean that because Jigoku is fucked <laughs> i mean it because it's it's actually like it's i i was, I was looking at a letterbox and somebody described it as being like you know like play school um i don't know if that that probably doesn't mean anything to you guys but like like you know it's it, like sesame not quite sesame street but like a, 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 a parts of jugoku feel like a kid's afternoon television program of like how can we make representations of hell with what we've got at home with plato and things like that and then hacking off limbs and ripping off the their chest to expose their hearts beating and all this kind of stuff but with this kind of like weirdly like yeah we're making stuff kind of (laughs) (laughs) and then just like layers in the hellraiser soundtrack out of nowhere which again is just like like we were saying before when when you mentioned about (laughs) playing star wars over the the horrors of men well then 
you know, 40 years later, he did that himself. <laughs> 30 years later, he did that himself. And just was like, Hellraiser soundtrack, that works. And it does. It just like, it piles in and adds to that weird, icky feel. And yeah, no, I, I, these two were just like, yeah, these are fine. I'm happy. <laughs> Have you seen the 1960 version of Jigoku? I haven't. That was uh, Nobuo Nakagawa, I think, and that's that one feels closer to the level of the Coffin Joe stuff to me because I think it was yeah it was four years before or five years before, but um, yeah, it's nuts as well. I highly recommend yeah, that. Oh. They try to do more with a plot in that one than uh, the Ishii one. There isn't much of a plot in the the Ishii one, but they, it, it's it's actually quite surprising how. Um true to the um shinriko uh this story it is um he doesn't try to and again i, I think like I'd, even though he's working in exploitation ishii like doesn't like he doesn't feel exploitative and when you know you're dealing with um shinriko it could have been really easy to make that super exploitative and Look, I, you know, I say this knowing that there's somebody out there going, are you fucking kidding me? There is so much rape and abuse and murder in that film. And I was like, I know I watch terrible films all the time and I'm dead inside and I forget that these films are fucked. But <laughs> the way that he, he presents it, it does, you know, it, it, it feels like there is a point behind it all and it's to show. There's no maliciousness behind no, it. No. Like, and that's, that's sort of the feeling that. Exploitation had its heyday and run in in the late you know late sixties seventies with things like Nazi exploitation and exploitation and exploitation and all the you know all the other exploitations and some of them felt really malicious and awful and mean spirited but a lot of them didn't a lot of them yes they have horrible horrible imagery and horrible acts being done but like we talked about with malformed men which is you know probably I would say one of your more less exploitation-y exploitation movies um, just as far as violence goes and visuals go but there's something to be said there's something behind that exploitation there's a theme behind it there's you know intention behind it rather than I think like Mike you said that at first when you were watching started watching that movie you didn't want to watch it because you felt it looked like it was filmed on a camcorder and I know exactly, like, the second you said that, I know exactly what you mean, because I think a lot of the exploitation films that came out post-90s, post-2000s, kind of got rid of all of that, any kind of theming and messaging and, and reasoning behind their exploitation, and they just made, you know, films like the guinea pig films, which I'm not a fan of, um, that just feel mean-spirited and ugly and dirty just to be that way. And I think that they sort of miss the point of exploitation as a genre. But yeah, I don't know. I think that there's something to be said about that that kind of exploitation from the 70s that does have a lot of staying power and sticking power because there's still something behind it. It's not all about the exploitation. Yeah, that's why I was uh, I was curious to... Because I, I feel like Horrors of Malformed Men is one of those films that I'm like, oh, yeah, it's not actually that messed up. And then somebody normal watches and goes, <laughs> what the hell is wrong what with you? What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, because like, I'm like, this kind of has a how-to quality of it where it's a little bit, you know, absurd and surreal and fun. And normal people be like, what is fun about this at all? <laughs> exactly. And so that's why I was like, I immediately chucked on Female Yakuza Tale to get a bit of sort of contrast. And like, that is super way more nasty in its 
violence, both sexual and other, um, regular, whatever. I don't know what the word would be. It's just general violence. It's female Yuki's tail is a lot more nasty and messed up. Palatable. <laughs> but it's it's well no, I think that the that to me that's that's the film that I more go like, oh I, I that's a film that's messed up because it's more things that ah. are like abuse and of uh, of very, you know, oh there's there's ugh, yeah, there's this stuff in female Yakuza tail which will have you go, whoa. <laughs> there's they like these there's there's they to do with drug smuggling and where they hide the drugs in women and how they test how much they can hide in women that made me go oh even oh, my eyes are watering right now um yeah and it's it's written by the 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 same or co- the same co-writer as uh as horrors of melville men a lot of other he also did um school of the holy beast as well and so then watching that, I was like, is, okay, so is it just that horror, like, is, it's, there's only about four years difference between the two. And I just, I couldn't tell if it was like, did that four years, because it was, you know, the sixties and seventies was a highly accelerated period when it came to permissiveness in relation to sex and violence on screen. And so it was like, was that four years and enough time for them to go like, oh, well, we can do this now? Or was it that issue knew that malformed men didn't need that and that it would tip it too much whereas female yakuza tale having a female protagonist being quite a feminist film borrowing from spaghetti westerns which are already quite hyper stylized in their violence that that meant that he was more willing to go to those places and so following that up i was like okay i'll, I'll chuck on another film for contrast and i'd had sitting here for ages um hanzo the razor sort of justice Oh. And so I chucked that on afterwards, and then I was just like, "Yuck, <laughs> yuck!" <laughs> and then for those who don't know, Hanzo the Razor is a detective film uh, in which the detective is very moral and hates corruption and is all about doing good, except that he rapes women constantly in order to interrogate them and get information from them. And of course, all the women love it by the end of it because his penis is so big and blah, blah, blah. And I just watched it and just being like, you could just feel it immediately. Like it just, the difference in style and tone. Mm -hmm. And it was like, no, this is just, this is just this is trash like this is yuck this is this feels abusive and destructive and meaningless and it was like it was it was such a fascinating triple to do because even though Ishii was going into places which would be considered far more taboo by a lot of people and cultures it this as soon as you got the hands of the razor it was like you could just feel it immediately that difference in tone and everything and it was like no he, he he was he, he was a weird one, and even when um you know killer uh, blind beast versus killer dwarf and stuff, the, the when the violence comes in it, it's actually quite shocking because they're quite restrained for the most part, and it, I almost didn't think that he was gonna go there, and it 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 does sort of save it up and use it in appropriately instead of just like as you were saying jess these films are just kind of do away with the meaning and just splash blood and gore everywhere and i was like you know even even at the end he was still like able to have that kind of hold and control and that's what game where i come back to like wondering what he was reading the kind of like what what subject matters were of interest to him because i think that just like a 
Jodorowsky and, you know, and Lynch and all these other you know, iconic figures that we're talking about. And, I mean, like, you look at Coffin Joe when Coffin Joe came back and had made Embodiment of Evil, you know, 15 years or years ago, and that film just is gross and nasty and not particularly enjoyable and it is exactly that it's it's there's there's no meaning behind it it's just like oh how fucking nasty can we be and ishii even though he is tackling one of the most horrific groups in japanese history and all this horrific stuff in japanese hell and all of this nightmarish things in like blind beast versus gilded dwarf it's still yeah do you know it, it it do, it feels like he does actually have a purpose to it, and that there is that sense of again like the grand guignol where there is a sense of fun to it. That it's like we want to push your buttons, but we want you to be wanting us to push your buttons. That's actually something really hard to pull off, um, and pretty rare. So yeah, I, I, I for one, I'm I'm definitely please world release more issue films. We need more issue. What is that? Is that just rights issues? Is that because I mean, you would think Synapse or Code Red or Screen Factor. I mean, any of the Vinegar Syndrome. Well, Arrow's done two in the last two years with Orgies of Edo and Malformed Men, um, and they did one of their first batch was Blind Woman's Curse, which unfortunately is now well out of print. I know here in Australia, uh, Female Yakuza Tale, and it's it, it's actually the sequel to Sex and Fury. Um, they were released on DVD, so they were available fairly readily, uh, like 10 years ago. But beyond that, it's, I think just, it's just one of those things where he's just not really considered. I think it's a bit like, um, uh, Georges Fanjou, um, you know, director of Eyes Without a Face, where very, like, uh, like almost impossible to calculate how significant a director they are and how important and how much they helped shift and alter their own industries but they worked in a particular style and strand of cinema that just caused everyone to be like "Mm, we don't want to talk about that and i think that's basically all it comes down to that it is that a bit of a cultural cringe that it's like it's taken you know a long time for france to come around to being like oh yeah you know maybe franju was all right as opposed to being one of the most important filmmakers of the 20th century. Because um, you could, I remember reading about that, that you, there were, you know, encyclopedia, French books that were encyclopedias of films that would either not mention Georges Franju at all or would only mention him in passing. And it's like, no, Eyes Without a Face is equally as important as Psycho for that massive shift that happens in horror in 59, 60. So many of his films, you just unbelievably, beautifully constructed and so important. And I think Ishii is the same, you know, that he did work in low genres, that he he didn't, you know, cross over to make his, uh, you know, Kurosawa kind of things. He just he, he he started off making these trashy sci-fi films. He made trashy prison films. He made trashy Yakuza films. He made trashy torture films. And it's like 
just, you know, it, when you think of someone like Barber who was written off for so long as well, uh, just being a exploitative horror filmmaker and trashy filmmaker, and it's taken until, you know, the last 10, 15 years before we're like, oh, no, wait a minute, he's one of the greats. He's, like, up there in the Pantheon, and it can be screened at, you know, Cinematech style things alongside, you know, uh, Fellini and such without people going, what the... And I think that Japan has just taken so much longer to get to that point. Because I know in, in reading about the, the, the Shunga erotic art, um, that basically the, that wasn't, uh, really, it was still kind of looked down on and kept under wraps until only like the last 30 years. And it's only in the last 30 years that this, you know, it's <laughs> absolutely one of the most significant or art forms in Japanese culture because, as you can see, like the sunga underlies, like, you know, iragura and hentai and all these other forms that are really dominant in the, in a lot of the culture. It's only in the last 30 years that they've started to talk about it academically and start to, you know, present them in museums and to release books about them and go, these are important, even though they are deviant or obscene or whatever they're important and i think ishii is that kind of thing where it's like he's way down the list as far as japanese culture goes they're still the the people who are the gatekeepers of japanese culture i think are still you know they they, they're still too busy discovering you know whoever made whatever theatrical i don't i don't want to i don't want to slag off Art films. I'm just really bored of art films from the 60s and 70s lately. <laughs> <laughs> They're great. The Japanese cinema of the 60s and 70s is amazing across the board. But when you get someone like Ishii, uh, and you know, and then you've got the, the 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 that they just didn't have that breakout. You know, it's something like Horrors of Malformed Men. If it had had an international release, I do think he would be a lot more well known. But it just it just didn't happen, and it, 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 he was you know he he was very successful at home. He's you know Avatari Prison was a a massive hit that spawned. He he made like I think ten of those films, and the series kept going. And I, I can't remember the who's the the lead actor in that. He went on to an international career, and that film started Ken Takahura, Takakura. Yeah, and so you know he was in Black Rain, Yakuza. Oh, Mister Baseball with Tom Selleck. Who could forget? It's there's really the the only reason for it is that he just was an actual legitimate outsider weirdo who made legitimate outsider weirdo films, and of course you know those people were often the most influential, but often the most ignored until long, long, long later. <laughs> you know, I love Shuji Teriyama, and I think maybe Fruits of Paradise is available readily, but nothing else. I mean, even. Uh, the boxing movie that he made, which would be pretty, you know, it was the most unusual movie for him compared to like, you know, uh, th- throw away your books and, and march out in the streets or whatever that was called or Emperor Tomato Ketchup. I mean, those things will probably never get a real legit release. And it, yeah, there's just so many filmmakers from Japan where it's just like, okay, I'm, that's great. I love Kurosawa. That's fantastic. But can I see some more Wakamatsu or, you know, any of the other ATG filmmakers? I really want to, to see more of these guys and, and more off the wall exploitation stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I'd forgotten about, um, I, I was, was actually thinking a lot about Wakamatsu while watching these, um, especially the, 
Ah, uh, the one he made a, that was based on the Richard Speck killings, because that's that's an interesting connection as well with the omission Rico of using true crime to to look at that uh, uh, that Japanese culture and examine sort of you know the toxic ideology. He even made a, a Rampo adaptation, Caterpillar. Oh, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't come across that one. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Megura no sekai ni nogosareteiru. Tatta hitotsu no tanoshimi. Sore wa shokkaku desu. Naka demo onna no karada no tezawari ga ichiban desu. Atatakakute. Yawarakakute. この子の見張りは私が引き受けるよ。だから安心してアトリエでいい彫刻をこしらえなさい。けだもの。お前は俺のものだ。誰が言ったのかの死んでやろう知らせたまるかお前のおかげで男になれるんだ思いっきり痛いけ殺しんでやなところが私は次第に彼を愛するようになってしまったのですそして痛ければ痛いほど苦しければ苦しいほど喜び
Uh, well, I have been co-hosting another podcast with a frequent Projection Booth co-host, Chris Stashew. It's called The One Season Show, where we tackle shows that lasted only one season. We are in the middle of Kitchen Confidential right now. Um, I've also been uh, on Chris's podcast quite a lot. Uh, on two episodes for David Lynch December, and that's the Culture Cast. So if you want to know what my thoughts on Mulholland Drive... Uh, and Dune are, Mike, you were on that one, and uh, that was a fun episode. That was a fun surprise for me. Um, and then I, you can find me on Twitter at writer Jess Byard. Um, I tweet occasionally. I put digital art up there occasionally. Um, I, I don't know. I always have a million things I feel like I'm doing. Have you covered Earth 2 yet, or are you going to cover Earth 2? We have not covered Earth uh, 2. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't even know why this has come up lately, but this is like about the, the – whenever somebody mentions a one season only, and it's, I mean, this is the second time in a week that I've asked someone about Earth 2. I would totally do that. I, you know, I think I've probably only seen maybe one or two episodes of that show. <laughs> but, yeah, I, w- I would totally be down for that. I think that stuck with me because I, f- I feel like that was my first big television heartbreak. I think that was the first series that I remember falling in love with and it only having one season despite having a cliffhanger ending. And so I think that's why it's all stu- always stuck with me. Plus it has Clancy Brown in it, so that's also another reason to love it. So. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.